0: Welcome to episode 46 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav, a 3-3 Elk here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Coeur Idaho, it's the 3-3 Elk, Shane Beeps.
1: Stan, what's up? From the remote regions of Idaho. I'm traveling for work again, so I got the mobile setup going. There's probably really elk in Quarter Lane, Idaho, aren't there? There were definitely a lot of camouflage hats that I've seen so far. Did the elk wear the
2: camouflage hats? Or people trying to hide from the elk? Yes.
1: I think think maybe they got elked.
0: Also with us here in Chicago,
2: the 3-3
0: elk himself, Dave Harburger.
2: That's me eating grass. The elk noise. An elk noise. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think the elk noise when when you get turned into an elk is just like? <laughs> is that it? Oh man, you're an elk now. Poof! The three three elk Zach
0: Colhan is off this week. On today's show, we're diving into the newest bad boy on the block. It's Oka week, and no, we're not talking about the six man trickster. We're going deep on the thief of crowns. Why he suddenly becomes so impactful across formats, some decks he's appearing in in Modern, and how to deal with one when he's on the board.
1: So is there a way to deal with them on the board? Later.
2: I don't know. I want to know now. I really, I really want to know. That's, we call that a tease in the industry. We kick off the show with a look at
0: SCG Atlanta. Then we wind down with a check-in on our experiences with Magic's newest format and early Pioneer results. But first, some housekeeping. Shout out to our newest patrons this week, Jared K and Andre G.
1: It was funny how like Jared K. actually joined during our recording last week and we had to like <laughs> I was like, do we just start out, shout out Jared K. right now?
0: I think in the future, if you want to maybe get a breaking news alert forced on the dive down, you can try signing up for our Patreon around eight PM Central time on a yeah, Monday be night. Perfect. Yeah. And you might, so, you uh, might hack the show.
1: That's our call to action. All wannabe patrons join at 8 p.m. Central next Monday.
0: Yeah. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down where we have a variety of fun rewards for people at every tier ranging from access to our private chat room, signed cards, custom tokens, and custom playmats. The show is always free to all of our listeners, including bonus episodes. But for those who want to throw a little extra money our way, we've got physical rewards we're always excited
2: to share with you. Another way you can support The Dive Down is through our friends at Manatraders.com. So rent cards for MTGO or in paper with a digital subscription service. If you don't use Manatraders, you can sign up with coupon code TheDiveDown, all one word, and get 10% off your first three months of service. Play more decks, new strategies, and get better at magic with Manatraders.com.
0: Now with all that out of the way, let's jump over to Dave with this week's breakdown from sunny Hotlanta, Georgia.
1: I've never heard that before, Stan. Is that that's like an original gag? I think it's because it's warm there, right?
0: That's right. I, I actually, that's from a song I wrote in the late 90s.
2: You have a Grammy. <laughs> we don't talk what? about it very much.
0: It's one of my Grammys. I'm, I try to stay humble.
2: Oh, okay. Stan's got the EGOT. I mean, it sort of shows why Stan has time to do the podcast now. <laughs> He's just getting those royalties from ASCAP or whatever.
0: You really don't have to keep a day job if if you make a living off royalties.
2: Yeah, if you came up with the phrase Hot Lana, you don't need to keep a day job. And you're on Happy birthday, which is really weird to know. This week, like Stan said, we're going to take a look at Star City Games' Atlanta Open, which was the modern format. Uh, Later on in the show, after we do our dive down, we're going to take a look at the first uh, Pioneer Challenge on Moto, but for now we're going to stick to modern. So spoiler alert, Magic, across all formats, has gone loco for Coco this weekend. Or cocoa for cocoa puffs, Oco puffs. I don't know what phrase do we want to. I'm cuckoo for Oco puffs. Yeah, exactly. Oco's no joko. It perfects. O- Oco's o- kid tested, mother approved. Oco's broco. That's what people like to say too. Um, so there, there's nobody better, better. Nobody better lay a finger on my butter Oco. <laughs> Lego my Oco. Let's run this into the ground. Yes, perfect. Um, so you, you probably, if you were on social media or magic social media at all this weekend, you probably saw lots of stories as, uh, Oko had success literally across every format except for Popper. Um, and wouldn't be surprised to see him show up there.
0: I was just going to say, it's really only a matter of time before the Popper community figures out how good he is.
2: Just, just, just color in that set symbol black. You're good to go. So yeah, uh, apparently Oko was in the finals of the Vintage Challenge winner and the Legacy Challenge winner, or at least in the top eight of the Legacy Challenge on Modo. Uh, And also, you know, in Standard, there was an online arena MCQ that was over two days where I think the day two metagame was something like 60% Oko decks. All of these are non-footnoted, non-verifiable because we don't deal with formats other than Modern and sometimes Pioneer. Um, but anyway, so... We're gonna talk about how amazing Oko showing was at SCG Atlanta. So I got to watch some coverage on day one. Did you all get to see any matches? I did. Yeah,
1: I uh I had it on audio only mode where I like cleaned my gutters and such. It was
2: truly an adult day. Dude, that is what I do every time I mow the lawn, is like it's just me and Cedric, like out there or whoever's on camera. You know, it's a lot of Brian Gottlieb these days, but out there doing my yard work, Emma Handy. Yep, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I thought there were some really cool matches. It, it seemed like a pretty, uh, you know, immediately off the bat, I noticed something interesting that after the diverse meta game of the regionals weekend, it looked like the meta had snapped back to something that was much more kind of competitive focused. Um, at least it felt to me like a lot of the on camera matches had one of a few different decks on it, and so we will kind of take you through the story of how that evolved. But uh, get ready for a slightly narrow, narrow meta on on this particular event um seemed like urza was everywhere seemed like titan was everywhere seemed like death shadow was everywhere and it kind of looked that way on twitter too so i I did a little bit of poking around on the scgatl hashtag and i saw two tweets that were pretty interesting one was from michael kidd at that jund kid who said he went six and two should be locked for day two at scgatl with jund played urza three or four times Burn, Titan, Shift, and you are through the breach. So, out of eight rounds, this player played Urza three or four times, and then another person named Destry Cravens. Well, I went four, four, and one. Played against Warza a total of six times. I won't read the rest of his tweet, but um, yeah, six times out of nine rounds—pretty wild. So I. Th- think that other than some of the spicy things that we got to see, like Crab Vine and a couple other things like that, it mostly felt like where I spent a lot of Saturday watching Urza. And in particular, there was one Urza deck that featured very, very heavily. And it was a surprising one. And that deck was this new Simic Urza build from Team Lotus Box, featuring well-known SEG grinders like Zan Syed, Abe Corrigan, uh, Collins Mullen was on camera a lot, Edgar Malga was. As were, were a couple of other of uh, the team members uh, on Lotus Box, and so it looks like once again they um, managed to innovate on a deck that was already there and bring something really big and do really well with it. Um, the talk of the weekend was Urza, but he had a new friend, and that was the Shirtless Wonder themselves, Oko.
1: Yeah, it's it's it's. I know we're going to get into this deck detail a little bit more, but it's it's crazy to me how by streamlining the deck. It seems like they they made it even better, and so I kind of I think that says something about deck construction sometimes.
0: Yeah, not only that, but the fact that Urza can be paired with just like such a long list of artifacts and you know prison enabling cards. It feels like the possibilities are endless thanks to so this one creature.
2: Yeah, and there really aren't any prison-y kind of elements to this deck in a lot of ways, right? Because what, what we're looking at here is really... So the, the deck that Team Lotus Box brought to this, this tournament was basically adding four Gilded Goose to help with early turn uh, mana and also getting getting an early artifact out. Um, it had four Emery, four Urza, and then also four Oko Thief of Crowns in the main deck. Additionally, the deck played... Uh, Cryptic Command and Metallic Rebuke as kind of a piece of, of tech to to be able to get out there for a cheap mana leak with all the artifacts. And the thing that it kind of cut back on in order to do that was infinite combos. So there's only one copy of Sword of the Meek, one copy of Thopter Foundry, and only two copies of War of Invention in the main, main deck.
1: Yeah. And Zan was saying that that's not even ubiquitous across all their lists. Like I think he was saying that Edgar... Still doesn't think it's necessary to have the combo, but Zan kind of wanted the instant win button from time to time, so he's still running it. But it's it's wild that it's just a deck that's playing like counter spells and creatures that have tons of value attached to them or can find value in your graveyard like Emery. I, I think it's surprising to me that it took so long for these decks that were already
2: running blue to start running Metallic Rebuke it seems like it makes so much sense. Yeah, it does seem like it's just kind of free value. And I, I wonder if it was just sort of like a lept was made because people were playing the um, Mystic Dispute or Mystical Dispute. And so they maybe they realized that this one is just as easy to use and probably has broader application and costs one only a single mana more often. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about this deck is that it is running one of my f- favorite combos in, in Modern lately, which is Mystic Sanctuary along with the Cryptic Commands. Also one of Shane's favorite combos.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that—that that is the killer app for Mystic Sanctuary. Like, if, if you weren't able to, to loop your cryptics, or even a single cryptic, like Xan and his deck tech mentioned, even if you just have a single cryptic, what you can do is you can then activate your Emery to get... Your Mishra's Bobble. Mishra's Bobble, yeah. And then you sack your Mishra's Bobble, draw it on the opponent's upkeep. You always have access to a cryptic command when you're doing that. So it doesn't even require like looping two of them, like I've seen in some mid range based decks.
2: Yeah, I, I've done a good amount of this lately online for better or for worse and managed to do things like lock people out of creature combat five or six turns in a row while I kill them with a flyer or deck people by not <laughs> with this particular deck, but deck people by recasting Thought Scour several times to take them from 10 to 15 cards down to 0 while I cryptic commanded them and made them unable to do anything. Um certainly eats up some clock on Magic Online but in in this deck it definitely feels like it's part of the main plan is to loop these cryptic commands over and over again. Really powerful combination especially, you know, zan mentioned as well on the deck tech. And by the way, there's a really good deck tech where Xan explains a lot about the deck uh on the Star City coverage page so you should go watch that uh, if you have a second but he mentioned that you know you can get to a point where you can play urza and then have cryptic command up because of all the artifacts that you have in play and that's a pretty good place to be
0: so do you think this is ultimately a control deck that's using cards like cryptic obviously but also engineered explosives um and oko basically to just play a control game and then if they have to sideboard into damping sphere or ensnaring brager cage that's when they start to play a more prison strategy
2: you know I mean, my take on it is that i think that they're just trying to grind out value and kill you with either instant win button with the combo without uh you know having to have that be drawn so much or killing you with killing people with constructs which is pretty interesting uh, way to do it or elks honestly you get oko out you get some stuff going and then you start turning your your own artifacts into elks so i do think you get to play a little bit more of a mid mid-rangey game with it than combo probably
1: yeah i mean if you have a, an emery sticking on the board and you're getting back your cheap artifacts or even your non-cheap artifacts from the graveyard you can then oko them and turn them into elks you sort of have like this really good supply of free or cheap creatures coming out of your graveyard it seems like a really crazy engine and it's 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 surprising to me that it took a little bit to get down to this where it's just like hey these these cards have so much inherent value that we don't need to do a lot of finagling with them we can just control the game and use the value and inherent in them to to just generate more value than our opponents over the course of you know three
2: games so let's go on to day two really quick so we can see what effect this this deck and the pervasiveness of it had on the day two meta. And um, 109 players made day two of the, the event, and we're going to break it down into tiers for people to see kind of like by percentage. So the top tier of day two decks were Simic Warza and Amulet Titan. Simic Warza had 10 pilots and Amulet Titan had nine, um, which is Pretty amazing. So there were nine nine percent, nine point one seven percent of the Day Two meta was Simic Wurza, and then Amulet Titan was eight point two percent. So clearly, Amulet is looking strong after its really good regionals performance, where it was really a standout as far as top eights went. I think that's continuing here, and it still is like a very good deck to be packing right now if you if you have it um, in this world where you're mostly going to be fighting you're going to be fighting against Urza quite often.
1: So Dave, you're calling the Simic deck a Wurza deck. Um, did did all did that always feature War
2: of Invention? I wasn't certain. All of yeah, all of them were really close to the same deck from what I could tell. Okay. And the name, the list, the name list online is Simic Wurza. Got it. Um the second tier, there were f- I would say there's four decks in the second tier. Seven pilots were on four color Wurza. So let that sink in for a second. There were ten pilots on Simic Urza, and also seven pilots on Four Color Urza. Then there was seven pilots on Green Tron, seven pilots on Burn, and six pilots on Crabvine. For between five point five and six point four percent of the meta, between all in in each one of these kind of deck categories. So more Urza, big mana, big burn, and the latest dredge variant that people uh, are enjoying these days. Yeah, this tech just shot up to a surprising popularity crab vine you mean by this deck right yes 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 crab vine
0: <coughs> i mean it, me. it's just got to be the fact that no one is packing graveyard hate anymore and i don't think there's a lot of spots for graveyard hate when you have to worry about these super powerful artifact strategies
1: but don't those artifact strategies still rely on the graveyard i'm surprised if people are really still skimping
2: out on it well I, mean, I think that's a big difference i don't think that the simic deck really relies on the graveyard at all it's just sure. a, it's just decent against it but there's st- they still have other game plans that they can do um the jeskai ascendancy one does rely on the graveyard although you know that deck's falling out of fashion and also there are ways to win without graveyard hate against that deck
0: and it wasn't even listed in the day two metagame
2: ah uh, yes it was we'll talk about that a little bit later <laughs> So, I, I crabvine also had a nice deck tech from Oliver Tamayo, which I think is worth watching. Um, I think the deck is is actually good, and if you liked playing Hogak or Dredge, and you held on to your Vengevines, I think this is a good deck to try out. Um, it's not a super expensive deck if you have the mana already so i think it's a good way to evolve if you love these graveyard aggro strategies one thing that's really cool is that this deck runs not only does this deck run crab uh hedron crab to be able to have a, a reliable source of self-mill it also runs the new merfolk safekeeper from uh secret from keeper Eldraine. secret keeper yeah and then also uh runs glimpse the Unthinkable which is sort of interesting given that a bunch of decks were trying out Tome Tome Scour in the Faithless Looting slot, and I think they were all just finally like, forget it, we'll just use double Tome Scour. So now that we've looked at the top tier and the second tier, I just would like to point out that we have gone through decks that comprise 42% of the Day 2 meta between these uh, seven decks, or sorry, six archetypes, actually. Um, I don't think we've seen a deck that I would consider particularly interactive, I guess the Simic Wars deck is actually, is kind of interactive since it's sort of mid rangey and has counter spells and has some kind of counterplay. But it's interesting that these six decks essentially make up the uh, about half of the metagame from uh, from the weekend.
1: Don't forget that burn uh, interacts with uh, your
2: opponent's face. <laughs> yeah is is it? Do you consider it to be that way?
1: I mean, I think this argument is just something to you know, for people to sort of dither about and doesn't, it's not really super, super meaningful.
2: Whether a deck is interactive or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I think it doesn't interact in in the typical fashion. Like it
2: interacts with opposing creatures to get damaged through and that's really about it. Yeah. Do you feel like that's not even a great way to think about the health of a meta when people start talking about interactive versus non-interactive decks? You're like, I'd rather talk about something else in that discussion.
1: Yeah. We kind of had a discussion today, at least Stan and I had a really short discussion about sort of you know, the B word and we kind of got to the, my, my thinking about like sort of what makes me concerned about a deck and it's, and it's not whether or not it's interactive. It's kind of about, you know, aspects we've talked about in the pod before, like what does hate look like? What does, you know, what, are you able to successfully interact with it yourself? Like if they're a linear combo, like how, how successful can your interactivity be things like that? So, yeah, I think some people, like that, I think it's kind of a vestige of a lot of people who play formats like legacy, or they're also or they may be coming from standard where the interactivity is typically higher in both those formats in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, long story short, long answer short, uh, I don't think it's a, I don't have a great answer for you, Dave.
0: I mean, we do start to encounter interactive decks as we start to go down the list and even look at the winner of the tournament.
2: Correct, and that that's the thing that's super interesting is that the last tier of decks that we'd be talking about right now as a grouping of the like the major metagame is the decks that registered five pilots and four pilots on day two. And those decks were Titan Shift had five pilots, Grixis Death Shadow had five pilots, Eldrazi Tron had five pilots, John Shadow had four pilots, and Original Jun. The Shadowless Jund, as I like to call it now, also had four pilots.
0: Bloodbraid Jund.
2: Bloodbraid Jund. Yeah. And each of those comprised about, you know, uh, four and a half and 3.6% of the metagame. So together, these decks were right around 25 ish percent of the metagame themselves.
1: So when we talk about the way they're interacting, so their first step is going to be Thoughtseize Inquisition, right? They're just sort of interacting with their opponent's hand, they're trying to disrupt. These more linear game plans. So, you know, they're trying to remove the Urzas, they're trying to move the Emerys and sort of shut down their engine pieces, right? And then after that, they have the pieces of removal along with their clock with things like a big Tarmagoif or a, you know, a, de- a large Death Shadow and getting that damage across before the engine can be put online, the typical mid range strategies, right? Basically, yeah,
0: a tale as old as time.
1: It's funny that that's like that's the counterplay, right? So, we have like the popular decks are engine combo e you know, huge value and things like the Simic Wurza. We have some combo y Wurza and like the, the four color, you know, Titan Shift, Mono Green Tron. They're trying to just enact either a big mana plan or an artifact combo plan. And then the other side of the coin right now just is like, Maybe my hand intera- my hand interaction and my board interaction as such will get the job done after the fact.
2: So what you said I think is a great segue, Shane, because I, I went back and I looked at some of the larger kind of metagame chunks uh, by kind of glomming together some of the decks. So if you look at the Day 2 meta overall, there were 22 Urza decks out of the 109 decks that made Day 2. Um, that make which accounts for twenty point one percent of the metagame. So twenty percent of the day two metagame was Urza of some fashion. Now that included all kinds of varieties, whether it was Simic, whether it was Four Color War, whether it was um, Ascendancy, whether it was Outcome. Obviously, Ascendancy and Outcome didn't even register on our kind of tier list for this week, so they were less than four copies a piece. But um, it, altogether, twenty percent Urza. The next block down that I kind of saw when I was looking at this list was that there were 14 Titan decks out of 109 decks on day two for 12.8% of the meta. So between Amulet Titan and Titan Shift, uh, there were 14 of those, which is also a really still a really significant um, part of the metagame. After that was Death Shadow decks. There were 12 Death Shadow decks for 11% of the meta, which includes things like Grixis Death Shadow, Jun Death Shadow, there was also a couple of four-color Death Shadow decks and one Salt High Death Shadow deck all in there. Guess what the uh, Salt High and four-color Death Shadow decks were running? <laughs> Oko. Yeah, it's Oko. That's why they uh, they got in there. None of those decks placed as high as the as the, the um, Grixis Death Shadow or, or Jaundice, it turned out. The uh, another bucket there is Tron decks. Now, we always have a little bit of kind of concern about grouping Eldrazi Tron and Mono Green Tron together in the same bucket, but there were 12 decks, also 11% of the meta running, um, running play sets of Tower, Mine, and Power Plants. And then finally, the next, the last major group that I saw kind of looking at it was Burn esque decks, which was at 9%. So 8% of the er, nine decks or 8% of the meta, basically.
1: So, what this is like 60, 65% combined for these five groups? Yep. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good portion. I actually would have guessed higher on the Urza decks, to be honest with you. You would guess
2: higher than 20%? Yeah, I would have guessed higher Ooh. based on how it felt. Yeah. You know, what
0: really stands out to me from this list is that the first three decks you mentioned are really defined by the creatures within them. Whether it's Urza, whether it's Primeval Titan, whether it's Death Shadow, it seems like these are almost the impactful build-around cards that certain strategies are coalescing around in terms of their impact on the format.
2: I mean, what's really interesting is what's missing from this list in some ways, too, which is former or recent uh, pillars of the format, which are Stoneforge Mystic and Noble Hierarch slash Aether Vile would be the ones that I would say are kind of missing from this list right now. Um, Probably some others to consider, but uh, those are the ones that come to mind immediately as being kind of absent.
1: There's no path in any of these five chunks. Like so, like our 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 color our single color single mana spells that formerly seem like they've defined the format aren't quite as valuable any right now it seems, or they're not quite as format pillars. We have different pillars now, and they just cost more mana. But because there's so much acceleration, especially with the artifacts acceleration, that it seems like it doesn't even matter.
0: I wonder if one of the takeaways here is that mid-range is just in a better position right now than control
2: i think it's that hand disruption is in a better position than sweepers is kind of what it is and so that's that's what control generally gets to bring to the table and what mid-range gets to bring to the table you know at least traditionally as the decks are built in modern and i think one of the big indicators of that being the paradigm instead is that there's no so stoneforge is still generally a mid uh, mid uh, mid rangey kind of plan, right? And there's almost none of those decks in the Day 2 meta, but there's a lot of thoughts these decks in the May 2, Day 2 meta. So,
1: And later, I think we can talk about two Stan, um, with the impact of Oko in these decks that can run him, it kind of invalidates a lot of the formerly perhaps the former competitive strategies that would be able to work against it.
2: Alright, so let's talk about what happened in the top 8. So, it turns out that Team Lotus Box put four team members into the top eight. Uh, Edgar Magalays, Collins Mullen, Jeremy Bartirone, and Zan Syed all made the top eight, all on Simic Urza. There was also a fifth player on Simic Urza, Eli Kassis. Uh Eli was on a pretty different build without Emery or Gilded Goose so it's it's hard to say it's the exact same deck as the Lotus Box one but it was definitely built up around having Oko as one of your main one of your main things. But here's the big twist is that Urza didn't win the tournament. So here's here's the top 8 from first place to 8th place. So in first place was John Holland on Grixis Death's Shadow who managed to get through all of these matchups playing Urza A whole bunch during the weekend and won the tournament
0: you know i think he had home court advantage i i learned in the interview that he's from hotlanta
2: oh no kidding
0: yeah so the judges are probably helping him
2: subtly he got to sleep in his own bed on saturday night that is a good a good uh advantage he didn't have
1: any like time zone weirdness uh you know all that stuff that they talk about in football
2: matchups yeah, he, did tra- he was a West Coast John uh, Grixis Death Shadow pilot traveling east for the game. That's always
1: uh, it's just it's just brutal. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the altitude
2: there. Do you think that John Holland is better Grixis Death Shadow pilot in a dome, or is he good in the open air?
1: <laughs> well, you know, when you have wind at the back, you know, the wind at your back, you can do like the sixty-five yarder. But in the dome, there's no wind at
2: all, so it's just really still. Yeah. I mean, John Holland could probably kick a seventy-two yarder. Yeah, I think so too. In second place was Collins Mullen with Simic Urza. In third place was Jeremy Bertaroni with Simic Urza. In fourth place was Zan Syed with Simic Urza. In fifth place was Austin Collins with the Amulet Titan. Sixth place, Eli C. Simic Wurza. Seventh place, Edgar Magalhaes, Simic Urza. And finally, Matt Clutter with Devoted Devastation. Eighth place. Yeah, Matt. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Matt. We're here for you
0: keeping the dream alive.
2: Real quick, nothing too interesting about the Grace's Death Shadow deck, but way to pull it down in a field full of Urza. The main thing I thought was interesting was that uh, John Holland had one Royal Scions in main and one in the side. It feels like that's starting to be a little more acceptable in the Grace's Death Shadow decks as sort of a redundant kind of card filtering engine and also a way to um, like an alternate way to team or battle rage your uh, Death Shadow occasionally in a pinch, and also a win con of its own if you manage to hold the board long enough. Yeah, I've been hearing some
1: rumblings, um, specifically on the midweek modern podcast, which is kind of a reconfigured version of the birthing podcast. And one of the co-hosts there was saying that you know the power of Royal Scions seems quite real in Grixis Death Shadow and. that that there's been some other rumblings about, I think uh, Edgar himself was saying something like Team Red Battle Rage is kind of a sacred cow and that Royal Scions might be a legit replacement for it once
2: people realize it. Yeah, it's almost like you listened to our own podcast on the spoiler episode where one of your co-hosts said that that might be a possible use for the Royal Scions. I'm not going to say which co-host. It was Emma. Yeah, it was.
0: (laughs) It was my, or no, I guess it was your click to pick, wasn't it, Dave? It
2: it was, yeah. Yeah, Dave talked for like 12 minutes about it. It was great.
0: It was maybe, maybe it was our click to pick.
2: (laughs) And someone said, what does it replace? And I said, maybe team or battle rage. Uh, It turns out that in John Holland's build, it's more likely that Royal Science is replacing lightning bolt. There's no lightning bolts in his build. And there was also only a one X of serum vision. So I think that that's some of the slots that Royal Science is getting, uh, is replacing in his build.
0: I mean, if you look at this top eight and day two meta, lightning bolt is not good enough.
2: Not like, good all enough. All it if,
0: kills is Emery.
2: Yeah. It's not good enough if you're not going face, right? Yeah. Also nothing too surprising in the Amulet Titan or Druid Combo deck lists, other than the fact that it looks like Druid Combo is now running uh now running some quantity of Oko as well. Yes.
0: Here's a little tease. I'll talk
2: about that in the dive down. So let's so there's there's your top eight. I think we should talk about Urza in general, in the metagame really quickly right now, just to give a sense of kind of how things broke down. So we already talked about the fact that the Day 2 meta was 20% Urza decks. But why don't we go from the top down? So as we said, there were five Urza decks in the top eight. That is 62.5% of the top eight. Further down, there were nine Urza decks total in the top 16 for 56.25% of the top 16. So over half of the top 16 was Urza decks there were 16 Urza decks in the top 32 decks of Atlanta for 50% of the metagame of the top 32. And finally, there were 21 Urza decks in the top 50 of Atlanta for 42%. So so here's the deal. As the competition got higher, the percentage metagame of Urza also got higher. So it's hard to look at it any other way than to see that... Um, Urza had an incredible weekend and it shows in, you know, in the success rate and the win rates and all that stuff. I would like to say one thing, which is that, do you remember how we said that there were 22 Urza decks in day two? Mm, Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. There were 21 Urza decks in the top 50, which means that out of 109 decks with 22 pilots on Urza, only one pilot of Urza did not top 50 with the deck and that is the only player who made day two on urza ascendancy Uh oh wow yeah i mean it's really interesting right and i feel like this is sort of you know there might be some kind of you know i'm not the logical fallacy guy i'm not here to be internet logical fallacy guy and say that this is selection bias or something like that you know there were a lot of excellent excellent players on the Simic Urza deck. And so it's hard to know exactly how much of that is thanks to just how good these players are versus their deck selection. But you know, you got to think that the best players are going to try to pick the best decks as well.
1: I just want to think about what if 42% of the top 50 decks uh, had the word death shadow. Yeah.
2: After that, right. No one would be happy about that. Not a chance. I mean, if they, if it was any of them, if they all said burn, no one would be that happy about that either, I don't think, right?
1: Yeah, but it's just, I think right now it's almost the fact that it's like mildly obfuscated behind like these different deck names. But Urza is the core of all of them.
2: Yeah, and their combo decks, mid-range decks, control decks, it's, it's all over the map as far as what they're doing. But they are all trying to mox opal you to death, let's be honest. Yeah,
1: that's a good question. That's what I've been thinking about, right? Like, when you talk about stats like these, it's easy to think about the B word. But it's like, is is Urza the problem? Is Mox Opal the problem? Uh I don't is it a problem at all? Like it's I'm kind of assuming the answer that everyone's agreeing with or something like that. But I mean, I don't
2: know. So that's kind of like Urza in a nutshell for this tournament. We talked about that deck a couple of weeks ago, so we don't have to dwell on it too much more, but let's talk about Oko. Now, as a little bit of a uh, a preview for our Dive Down topic, and I, I want all the listeners to know that this means I really care about you because I went through every deck list in the top 32 and manly did a, manually did a count of how many Okos were in everybody's 75s. So, you did Control-F and you know it. Well, I had to go through individual pages, though, to do that because uh, it wasn't on Goldfish yet when I did this. Oh, no, you couldn't expand all? No, because I was going through Star City's pages. Anyway... The top eight featured twenty-two Okos in six decks. The only decks that didn't have Okos in the top eight were Amulet Titan and Grixis Death Shadow. The top sixteen had twelve more Okos. There's a little bit of an Oko trough in the top sixteen. It's a little bit less for. There's only twelve more. The Uncanny Oko Valley. Yeah, there were four Urza decks in the top eight that that had. Uh, or sorry, there were four Urza decks in the the rest of the top sixteen that had a full play set of that had three Okos apiece, basically. The top 32 had 32 more Okos across 10 different decks uh, in 17th through 32nd place, including an Infect amulet and a single four-color Death Shadow pilot. So for Oko Watch 2019, like the beginning data point, the grand total is that across the top 32 there were 66 Okos and 75 across 20 decks out of the top 32. So that means two thirds of the top 32 had an average of three Okos in their 75.
1: So do you think we should talk about this card soon? Yeah,
2: I think we're going to talk about it in about three minutes. Hold on, what? This wasn't Spirits Week? This is not Spirits Week. Oh, no. I want to apologize to everybody who thought we would be on theme and do Spirits for Halloween. We just had to talk about the ghost that is truly haunting the format, which is Oko. And his abs. So, quick takeaways from the tournament and things that I think we learned by looking at this metagame. If you like Urza, there's just about every flavor ready for you. Control, combo, mid range, interactive. Enjoy it now because. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, the meta overall is mostly unchanged from, from regionals with a number of decks, but there are lots of. Um, the, the kind of distribution has changed a lot with Urza being at the top. So just remember that what you might have seen at regionals, if you go to an open, it's probably going to be a lot more spiky and a lot more kind of top heavy with these with Amulet Titan and Urza. I think this is a great time to play Death Shadow, regardless of if you prefer Stubborn Denial or Tarmogoyf. They both seem to be showing up, even with a meta that has a lot of main deck engineered explosives. Um, I think you just have to be mindful of that when you're playing Death Shadow in particular. I think that if we're going to talk about bannings, we might need to talk about banning Team Lotus Box. Right. Are they the best team we've ever seen on Star City games?
1: I mean, they just have the skill. They have the preparation. They attend reliably. They bring typically mostly unified decks. So it feels to me they're like they're like truly skewing things at this point on the SEG circuit like for, for better or for worse but they're like the data looks skewed because of our perceptions and we see you know in the top 4 of the top 8 that's the actual results of the tournaments right
0: I think if any of our listeners have ambitions of trying to go pro or maybe get really impressive results in competitive magic team lotus box creates a really interesting model for how a team structure could work where my understanding is like a lot of these players live in the same house and basically treat magic as their full-time job and they live and breathe decks, cards, and testing. And I think when you put that much work toward anything over time, you start to see results.
1: Yeah. I mean, and what's interesting too is speaking of team Lotus box, right. And their impact is, uh, Sayed he he had a a very similar deck and a few of them I think were running kind of this at regionals, right? And so people got kind of a sneak preview of it. I think that they talk about it on their Patreon. Yes. And and uh probably stream it a little bit too. And so it was brought by more players than just them. So if a, if a someone wants to get a little bit of an edge, they can see, I think, what Lotus Box is playing or has recently been playing and then bring it themselves, which additionally kind of puts a spin on the, the meta that you might see at an SCG.
2: Yeah, I think there's two things that are interesting here is that, you know, clearly there have been some teams that have been as dominant on the pro tour and things like that or testing teams and things like that. I just think that this is the first time there's been such a concerted effort put into Star City Opens. And there's good reason because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how GPs aren't as well supported for competitive players anymore. And so a lot of these players who are out there on the East Coast, who are part of the Star City circuit, don't really have a lot of motivation to get involved in kind of the Magic Fest Circuit, And that's unfortunate. And maybe this is instructive to, you know, Channel Fireball and the people who are and Wizards and everybody who's behind the the Grand Prix circuit to see maybe it's worthwhile getting some of these players to come back. The other thing I would say is that if you want to help support Team Lotus Box, you can go to their Patreon and just kind of pay them, uh, become a patron to see sneak peeks of their deck list and things like that. I mean, it's an interesting way for a group of players who are committed and at a time of their life where they can devote this to maybe help subsidize their rent. And so why not? You know, I, I don't go to tournaments all that much, but I, I think I'm probably going to give them a, a a follow on, on page, Patreon just to kind of help out and see how far they can take this. Yeah. Good call. But they still need to be banned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're going to write a quick open letter to the, band committee over at Wizards of the Coast try to get Zan Syed and his team of hooligans out of here but when we return we're going to talk about Oko, Thief of Crowns. Heard of him? You will. Stay with us. There's a new walker in town. Oko, Thief of Crowns. If you haven't met him allow me to introduce you. 1 blue-green for a 4 loyalty Planeswalker at Mythic Rare. Plus 2 make-a-food. Plus 1 target artifact or creature loses all abilities and becomes a green elk creature token with base stats, 3-3. Three, three. And minus 5 exchange control of target artifact or creature you control and target creature and opponent controls with power, 3 or less.
1: Oh, there's a minus on this card?
0: Yeah, it's, it, it's basically... Uh fine print at the bottom of a contract.
2: Is that how you guys felt about that too? I'll be curious to see because that's kind of how I felt about it. I still cannot abide that what is in the conversation is the best planeswalker ever has a line of type on it that says, make a food. Make a food. That's not even a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) It's not make some food, make food, make a food. food food. What's what's
1: great too is then when you... Then turn your food into an elk. It says, food is green. Perfect. <laughs> that, that's my favorite part. Food is green.
2: Oh, gosh. Okay.
0: So maybe it's obvious why we're talking about Oko this week. But if it's not, as we alluded to in the breakdown, Oko is everywhere these days.
2: That's right. Just a reminder that at SCG Atlanta, across the top 32, there were 66 Okos in 20 decks across people's 75s. And the average is that in two-thirds of the top 32, there were three Okos in their decks. That's complicated math, Dave. You know, yes. think of it this way. Two-thirds of the players are running Oko. That's easy, Close to a playset. And so,
1: also, you know, we see Oko being featured in decks that previously didn't have any Planeswalkers at all. Just as kind of a value card, or a tech card, or a creature-generating card. You know, some people like we've seen Sam Black, a you know, very high skilled, experienced player, calling Oko the best planeswalker ever printed. Uh, maybe even members of this podcast have called him that. And let's be honest, he's he's really handsome. He's he's a he's a fine, fine man. I'm confident
0: to say that. We don't usually talk about standard, but just a few weeks ago at Mythic Championship five, I want to say it was five. I can't keep track of the Roman numerals. He was the most played Walker, pushing out both to Time Raveller and Nissa, who shakes the world.
2: I think it. I think it like shakes worlds. That card is super powerful. It's just not modern level powerful. I don't. I, I know you're kidding around a little bit, but there's some people talking about banning Nissa, who shakes the world, in standard instead of instead of Oko. So, different discussion for different podcasts. But,
1: well, in this contemporary America, banning cards has been normalized, Dave.
0: Right, and in Modern, which is the focus of this dive, Oko's appearing in decks such as Amulet Titan, practically every Urza deck these days. In fact, five-color Niv-Mizzet, devoted Druid combo, some Stoneblade decks, and the list goes on.
2: Saltai Control, Saltai Shadow, Saltai anything.
0: It's a long list. Yeah, what's
1: what's? I'm just thinking, like, we've never really had a blue-green walker
2: even remotely close to this power level, right? I mean, I think there's basically only Kiora. Is a, she's a blue-green walker. And then also Nissa from Am- from Amoncat, right? And there's the Tamiyo, the new mm. Tamiyo. Yeah, Tamiyo too.
0: So why is Oko suddenly so ubiquitous? I want to start perhaps by considering Oko's power level based on our typical criteria for Planeswalkers, right? Just to start, he costs three mana. It's a good start. And since he's green, that enables him to be in a number of decks that have ways to cheat him out as early as turn two.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating how much the three barrier in the last year essentially has been pushed, right? I mean, you know, War of the Spark did it, and then we've gotten a whole bunch of other options. In this set, there's two three-man walk- walkers that are playable. It's, it's amazing to see that kind of evolve.
0: I think it's also very hard to talk about Oko without acknowledging the fact that he is very hard to kill at 5 to 6 loyalty the turn he comes down.
1: That's that is honestly the deal breaker
2: with Oko fundamentally. Just think about that. It's just truly insane. What that means basically is that if you're on a burn style deck, it's going to cost you like two or three cards to kill Oko if you are on a burn style deck that's trying to race it and not kill Oko, he can make food to give your opponent a chance to recover life, which we'll talk about I guess in a moment. If you're trying to kill Oka with creatures, it's generally going to take two creatures to get through in, in a lot of cases. Um, and sometimes you might not even have a threat that's big enough to kind of keep up. So that loyalty is a big, big deal.
0: Yeah, and I think really what you're alluding to there is some of the ways he begins to actually generate card advantage over the course of a game. Whether he's nullifying opponent's permanence, creating your own threats. He can even draw out games by generating a bunch of life via the food tokens.
1: He, like, he also generates sort of false life gain because your opponents want to get it off the board so badly like we'll talk about later for sure
0: yeah and and seriously in a format like modern where are making greedy mana bases is very easy because fetch lands are still legal decks really don't have to stretch too far in order to cast him it seems in fact in testing oko all three of us were able to try him in three different strategies i played devoted
2: devastation i was playing uh Bant snowblade and I played him in Saltai Control, and all of us missed the boat on playing him in Urza. So go back uh, to listen to our other episode about Urza. Anyway.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, honestly, though, in, in Urza, it's just kind of like a mid-range value play, right? And I think we're going to definitely hit on the points of what makes him playable in a mid-range deck, especially me, because my deck is very mid rangey.
0: Yeah, in making this episode, the question actually came up, which is, what is there to actually say about Oko? that we haven't already said, because it kind of seems like he's just good and shout out to Dave H for that great nugget Mm,
2: from our Patreon. Um, The, the other thing I would say too, is, you know, this same kind of outlook on Oko is what led us on our spoiler episode to really not talk about him there either. I think that all of us on the cast took a look at, at that card and said, this is a cool card. It's good. I don't really want to talk about it on the spoiler app,
1: Yeah, I was really close. Like He was like my third card, but it was just like, yeah, it's a great value card. It's probably going to do something, but I want to talk about this weird tech card instead with crazy metal art, but Oko is probably a better idea for us to chit-chat about.
0: Yeah, I guess we all thought that Oko would do something, but what we didn't anticipate is that he can do anything. Yeah. So what we're doing... On this week's dive is assessing how Oko actually impacted games in the various decks that we played. We'll attempt to identify common play patterns that he leads to, explore how he's winning us games, consider some of the ways opponents were able to answer Oko, and wrap up a bit about our thoughts on the future role of this Planeswalker if he stays in the format. So let's start with how we felt playing Oko and how he actually impacted our games. And I want to think that I kind of picked a curveball deck with Devoted Devastation, since that's really a combo strategy, and Oko doesn't actually support the combo. really just provides longevity, optionality, and value.
1: Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised um, that he's being played in a strategy like this, but then you look at all of the decks that's playing Oko, and it's hard to be surprised any longer, right? It's just kind of like a good secondary plan
0: of attack. Or just a way to keep you alive a little longer.
1: Mm -hmm. Sure.
0: Yeah, for the sake of science, I added several Ocos to the main deck. And I never sighted him out. Basically to increase the number of times I drew him and really to analyze him across a variety of game states. And in the course of about 10 matches, I got to cast him five times. And found he was actually bad to useless in only one instance. In every game I cast him, my opponent simply could not remove it. Flat out. Unless he was outright countered, he is incredibly sticky. And once he was on the board, it was basically up to me to determine how to use him such that I can keep the game going long enough that I eventually execute my combo finish.
1: I think that's a super good
0: point, Stan,
1: right? Is that it's not the easiest card in the universe to know what to do with every turn. So, you know, you can think about what is going to generate the value I need? Like, do I need more turns? Do I need to remove uh, the text box on an opposing creature or artifact? You know, can I, do I need to gain life? Am I adding power and toughness to my side of the board? Am I generating raw life gain through the food tokens? There's just so many, there's like you said, the optionality is surprisingly outrageous with just you know effectively two modes on the card there's a third somewhere if you want to use it now and then
0: yeah and just to illustrate really quick the one game i mentioned where he didn't matter was because i was straight up dead on board against jun death shadow my opponent had two seven seven shadows out and if but one of them connected with me i was dead so in that situation whether i turned one of them into a three three whether i tried to gain life which i didn't even have the mana to do There was no way of really getting out of that situation because I was already so, so far behind. So maybe we can identify like some caveats where perhaps he doesn't fully stabilize you if you're going to lose on the crackback. But even so, I think in a stalemate, we're going to see that Oko is a great tool for just pulling ahead gradually at first and then taking over the game altogether.
2: Yeah, I mean, like most kind of powerful low mana plays, he's a lot better earlier in the game than, than later in the game quite often, right? Because sometimes, I mean, if you're behind on board, he doesn't necessarily catch you up immediately. He can do a lot. But um, if you get him down early, though, you can really establish control of a game and just kind of make the game go as long as you want to.
0: In most games, I'd either elk a big creature to slow down an opponent's clock. Against burn, I could just make food for days so they essentially could never actually kill me. Even against Outcome, I was able to shut off both an Urza an Urza, an Emery, a Mox, and practically anything else they cast except Ascendancy.
1: Yeah, the artifact and creature capabilities makes Oko so silly. Like if it was just creatures, it would still be a lot, right? It's like, you know, the plus one, you know, adding loyalty to the planeswalker while also invalidating a text box of one of the primary ways of of generating value and effects in the battlefield. But no, you have to add artifacts onto that as well, so you can shut down so many important pieces in Modern.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that we sort of have underplayed the fact that how outrageous the Elk line is, that it's a plus, I mean, we, kinda, we, we read it earlier, but we haven't had that moment of, why is it a plus? Maybe we're going to talk about that more later, but really, why is it a plus? That's so absurd. I mean, to be able... So what I did one game was, in the deck that I played, was I dropped it and turned off a chalice on one. <laughs> yeah, why not? That was holding down all my cantrips and all my thought scours and like all the stuff I wanted to do with my deck. I was like, well, I got an Oko. Oh, you went chalice on one? That's cute. Bye.
0: So I'm curious to hear if you guys had a similar experience with me, but I really did feel that in none of my games did he actually present a win condition. Rather, I felt like he was basically just keeping me from losing. And as we'll get to later, I think it's this function that people need to really think about when they're facing an Oko. How do you win despite an Oko around since he's probably just going to stick around till the game is over?
1: I mean, we're probably jumping ahead, but it's fine to do it now, I think. I don't think three-mana walkers should be able to win the game by themselves, right? What? But I think Oko... Outrageous. Oko effectively wins the game by himself. Although I say that, and I immediately think of Liliana, the last hope.
0: Yeah. But she needs to ultimate to win, I think.
1: Well, I mean, that's, that's a perfectly valid way to use her in the shell that she exists in, right? So, I mean, but I don't think... I mean, something like Oko is effectively winning the game by itself because it's providing you with, with so many capabilities of shutting down your opponent's strategies that if you're doing anything on your side to advance your own strategy, that you're going to come out ahead.
0: Yeah. I guess like the one condition where Oko is the is wins you outright is if your opponent does literally nothing and you just turn a food into a three, three and beat face with that. But is that really a game of magic?
2: So I, I would like to say that in the deck that I played, that was a strategy because the deck that I played was all control and I didn't have that many ways to kill my opponent. Um, And so definitely sometimes making a food and turning it into an elk was the thing to do when I was holding a grip full of uh, abrupt decays and assassin trophies and cryptic commands Instead, I just needed a way to end the game.
1: So yeah, I think it's probably a good time for me to jump in and talk about playing Oko in Bant Snowblade or Snoco Blade, which is just essentially a Stoneforge mystic Bant shell where she's supported by things like Teferi 3, Oko, Spell Queller, Icefang, Koatl, so on. So it's a fundamental mid-range strategy, which is a place where I think Oko can and is shining right now. So ultimately, Oko just acts like a mega value engine. In this deck. So he's turning text boxes blank on the other side of the battlefield. He's creating creatures for you to attack and block with or put swords on. He's gaining you life. All while, like Stan said, being really hard for your opponent to remove. And so there's all sorts of really interesting interactions with Oko that I got to experience in this deck. So it runs Right now, just one or two Gilded Goose while a full playset of Noble Hierarch. I would not be surprised to see that number of Gilded Goose move up to sort of mimic some of the Simic strategies we saw in the Atlanta Modern Open. So it can turn the food from Gilded Goose into a hasty 3-3, essentially. So if you have a goose on, you know that you played earlier with the food sitting out, you drop Oko and you plus one it to turn your food t- artifact token into a 3-3 creature, it's swinging that turn, right? So that's something that your opponent has to keep in mind when they're facing down these tokens. And
2: it's something that you could do as sort of an aggro out in the Simic list on turn two, by the way, if you if you wanted to. If you can drop enough artifacts to get a Mox online, drop yeah, a couple yeah. Lands, Gilded Goose, turn your food into a a uh, 3-3, three, three, you can be swinging on turn two if you really, if you really really wanted to now. Like the Mox Opal and such. Yeah, so, I mean, you can, you know, also some of the things
1: that was great in this deck was turning like an Astrolabe that had already cycled itself from the cast into a creature. You know, you don't, you no longer need that mana fixing really, so your single mana Cycler is now a 3-3 three, three Elk. Your Ice Fang Waddle that also cycled itself, is now a 3-3 Elk if you don't need the flying evasion thing wearing a sword. So you have flexibility there. There's also Elking your Spell Queller in a deck like this, which is really nice because it simply removes that spell for good. A little rules thing I wanted to mention is that there's wording differences on like a card like Deputy of Detention and Spell Queller. So that doesn't work with Deputy of Detention, but it does work with Spell Queller. So those cards, you're going to see them often in... Uh, blue, white, or bat shells. So don't think that it's going to work the same way.
0: Yeah, the same is true of Kite Sail Freebooter as well. If you elk a Freebooter, but then remove the elk, you will get Freebooter's card back.
2: Hmm. Weird. Magic is weird. Magic
1: is weird. That's why it's so good. So, you know, uh, I, I did mimic some of uh, Stan's things he said earlier. That I definitely experienced some of the same things he did. But in a few matches that I played, Oko just effectively read... Three mana gain fifteen life and Beast from Within three opposing creatures. You know what I mean? Because the the opponent is so focused and probably needs to be focused on removing the Oko from the board that they're swinging into him with his huge amount of loyalty. So it's turn after turn of you know three or four damage going into Oko, where you're able to then cast an Ice Fang and start blocking with it while still generating value on the ground at the same time you're invalidating their the opposing creatures so that they're now like ground attackers instead of flyers like this was like a uh, game against spirits where i'm just shutting down their flyers or they're not able to put enough clock on me in the air to actually shut down my oko so i'm just gaining tons of life while generating food tokens and they're attacking him instead of me yeah on the you know on the same on this at the same token though or on the same token or looking at the same token from Aladdin's castle, uh, you know Oko is creating three three elks on the other side of the board, right? and I think that gets to why is it a plus? And I think maybe on the card design end of things, they're like, well, you're still giving the opponent some value, like maybe if you're turning their artifact into a creature they're now able to attack into you. But that still doesn't really balance out because 3-3 is not huge. You know, if your opponent has a a Noble Hierarchs on the other side of the battlefield, which I experienced while playing Stan, is, you know, that 3-3 becomes a 5-5, and that's not too shabby by any means, but that's only in a certain deck strategy for sure. So I think that... You know, even the fact that it's creating three three elks on the other side of the board, typically in a mid range strategy, you're able to control that pretty well, or have already generated enough blocking ability on your side of the the board, or you've gained enough life from the food tokens that it's not a huge liability.
2: Yeah, it's interesting when you look at the deck that I was playing. So, like I said, I played a salt control deck that was you know very heavy on cryptic command, into the story, thought scour, we um, got uh, drown in the lock and had Oko just kind of in there as a value planeswalker as part of a, you know, kind of just like a good a good card to have, um, giving my opponent Elks was actually a little bit more dangerous because because I didn't have a lot of blockers. And I didn't have a lot of blockers that were going to live through, through the Elks. So either I needed to be um, gaining more life with food, which... You know, if if they attack their elk enemy, they were often attacking the Oko, so I didn't necessarily get to do it. So there is this kind of like weird tension in a deck like the one that I was playing, where you want to make sure that you deploy Oko at the right time and under the right conditions so that you can use it as a win con, basically. So it was sort of like this interesting dual card where if I needed to drop it to get rid of something that was holding me up at the beginning of the game like a chalice on one like I was talking about I could do that and that was kind of an escape hatch or I could hold it up till hold it in my hand until the late in the game when I've established control with a cryptic a bunch of cryptic commands or I've drawn a zillion more cards than my opponent and so I know that I have assets to be able to to protect it and then I can sit down and play it.
1: Yeah, I think that kind of leads us into the next point Dave, which is like what are the play patterns we experience with Oko, right? And I think yours are novel in the control shell, right? Because you in my deck I was generating a lot of either smaller creatures that quickly became no longer necessary as the game went on. So my mana dorks or my ice fang or things like that already generated some kind of value by cycling themselves, for instance. Or, you know, I had enough mana on the battlefield that a noble hierarch was no longer that valuable. So either I could elk it myself and then have a blocker to typically trade with the Elks on their side. Or I was just buying time by trading them or by chump blocking with them against the opposing Elks and then suiting up a flyer with a sword or or giving something protection from the colors on the other side of the battlefield and being able to get that damage through for the win. My play patterns seem kind of straightforward. You know, like if there's a text box you want to remove, remove it. And if there's a creature on the other side of the board that can kill Oko, you remove it by Elking it. Otherwise, You can turn something into an elk on your side of the board like you need that 3-3 or you start going ham on the loyalty with that plus two. What did you think, Stan?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think kind of thinking about it in terms of Dave's question, which I sort of used to frame this topic, which is why talk about Oko? Isn't he just good? I felt like in most situations, if I could play Oko, there was practically zero downside to doing that. You know, unless I was concerned with like just executing my combo on the spot or if I thought I was playing him into a counterspell. There was almost never a board state where he wouldn't impact it in some way, assuming I wasn't just dead on board outright. Um, And something that Zach had pointed out to us, which I think is generally true, that his Elking ability is almost understated in how powerful it is. And how impactful in modern especially it is to just remove a text box from a creature, especially in a format with like the best creatures of the last 16 years. You know, unless it's an empty board state, there's almost no reason to make food.
1: Yeah, I think it was Ari Lax who said something like, your creature now, anything that costs like over 3CMC now needs to read, you
2: have a really interesting text box on ETB. Otherwise, it's just going to read as a 3-3 elk. That's maybe one of the problems we'll talk about in regards to Oko later on. But I do think it's interesting to point out that most of the situations that you uh, you guys were talking about are places where, again, you know to reiterate what I was talking about, where you have permanence in play that you can make a choice if you want to elk or your opponent wants to elk. And so
0: mm-hmm. it,
2: it's interesting that you know, this does feel like it's just sort of a perfect D. Mid range card, really, a super powerful mid range card. And if you start trying to like jam it into a control shell, I think it's a little bit less effective potentially or just a little bit harder to play with in that space. Um, You know, I, one thing that was interesting to go back to to Zan Syed talking about the Simic deck from Atlanta over the weekend, you know, he, he said something on his deck tech that was basically like, well, this is the real Jund, Mm. which is like the most wild thing when you think about it. Yeah, that was mad when he said that. But then I was kind of like, Okay, you know, after you know us talking about this and preparing for this episode, I can kind of see where he's coming from with that idea.
1: Stan, when you were playing with it, because we were playing more mid rangey, you know, creaturey type decks, did you make any kind of rules of thumb, like when you were thinking about targeting something to be an elk, when you were thinking about generating food?
0: I think in general, if a creature is bigger than a three three, it's an elk. <laughs> If there's no creatures on the board, I'm eaten. Otherwise, it's pretty simple. Just play him. If there's a creature, make an elk. If there are no creatures, make a food, unless the creature is super tiny. Like, I'm not sure I would actually necessarily elk a Lanor elves or a dork, but I would probably elk a noble hierarch.
2: Would you elk a monastery swift spear? In a prowess deck? Yeah. All day. Instead of making a food? It depends on the board
1: state, probably. Like, if I have like a mana dork out, I mean I'd probably I'd probably just elk here's here's what I'm here's what I'm thinking though. Here's here's the thing, Dave, is the elking being a plus sort of invalidates the creation of the 3 3. Because even if you don't have a blocker down, unless they have some like red based burn damaged or a hasty creature to come along for the ride, you still have a living Oko on the other side. And then you can just plus two it the next turn to generate a food token. Right.
0: Yeah, Dave, that's a really interesting question. What's more valuable, the prowess or the, the life, a turn, perhaps as late as a turn later, right? Because there are some conditions where you don't actually have the mana to crack that food on the spot. Right. I think in a vacuum, I would, assuming I'm not dead to like a burn spell or two and a swing from the Swift Spear, I'd probably make a food that I would then turn into an elk because Swift Spear is very vulnerable to blockers. And sometimes gaining life isn't just a matter of gaining life via food it's also a matter of preventing creatures from connecting with you
1: yeah that's a really good point stan i mean getting into the nuance of playing oko versus a burn deck i think the more that they're pointing burn spells at your creatures to get that ground damage through the happier you are yeah
2: distraction but
1: that's it's not really that detailed right i think it's it's pretty obvious when you're playing the games like if you have an elk target you know elkit if you can food
0: food right it's it's pretty elegant I think when it comes down to it, you know what I mean? Like the, the lines of play are so simple compared to some other planeswalkers that we see in modern all the time.
1: When I was playing it with Teferi three though, I did have a lot of complex lines that I had to think of. And the general speed of the deck being slow, uh, I ran out of time, a couple matches or I was just like poop like i i thought too long i was also trying to stream which i'm not expert at yet so i was trying to talk you know talk to people ex- explain my lines of thinking that's and how
0: they get I, you buddy I, yeah
1: it was brutal so guys i think we have to compare this to some other three mana planeswalkers, right because when sam black says something like it's the best planeswalker of all time you know he's incorporating mana cost with power and you know, fit for the format that he's in and he's in all formats. So what- not Popper. <laughs> yeah. Not Popper Patrol, no. But um, you know, sh- you know, shoot you either shoot from the hip or have a nuanced answer here. What do you what do you think? Do you agree with that statement? Most powerful three mana planeswalker, most powerful planeswalker in modern of all time.
0: I think I respect that opinion. And I don't have a strong argument for another walker that is outright stronger
2: what a diplomatic way to say it
0: ultimately what i'm trying to say is that i think he's as good as all the other most powerful planeswalkers out there and depending on which deck you're in and maybe oko belongs in every deck but depending on which deck you're in you might find that he's as good as liliana is in a liliana deck yeah
1: so what, what's our comparison right to fairy three liliana the veil
0: chase the mind sculptor Obnixilus reignited the perfect planeswalker
2: all the Obnixiluses.
0: Yeah, that's the thing about Ob. He's not the best walker. He's just the perfect walker.
2: I think that's true personally, but that's just me. The you know, Ren and Six is another one that people have been really hot on lately, of course, and that's one you could throw in the same bucket. I mean, I think those are generally considered the best four, right? Those are the ones you'll see the most. Liliana the Veil, Jace the Mind Sculptor, uh Teferi 3, Ren and Six, and Oko. Karn the Great Creator. Karn and the Karns are different. Very different. I feel like you can't throw those in the same bucket because they're combo pieces.
0: Yes, they, they only go in like a Karn deck, a deck that can sustain Karn.
2: Yeah, either through a ramp
1: or
0: through like, you know, the, the other pieces around him. Yeah. So I don't know. So in talking to Zach about this, he compared his Oko to, to Fairy 3, um, basically saying that he might not actually, that Oko might not actually be as strong as 3 Fairy um zach wrote in the notes that he might only be slightly below three fairy in terms of power level and that's interesting to me because i was always thinking about oko specifically against Lillian of the veil vale, which i've often considered the strongest three cmc walker and looking at lily she's got three relevant abilities that are likewise flexible in a variety of matchups and depending on your deck's role and the game state it feels like anything she does can help you stabilize from behind or gradually begin to pull ahead in a stalemate And I see Oko basically having the exact same impact on a lot of games where he just goes about it in a different way, but is also quite a bit harder to kill than Lily. So perhaps he's not taking a creature off the board, but for certain permanents, turning them into a vanilla 3-3 is better or as good as just getting rid of it outright. Totally.
1: Also, really importantly that I think people kind of neglect is Liliana, her removal ability, one, is not targeted. I mean, it targets the opponent but does not target the permanent you want to remove. Right. So if they have m- even more than one permanent, although in a mid-range shell, you're hoping that they don't really have that, but that's really not the the norm. You know, if you're dropping a Liliana, they may have two or three permanents and get to select. Like they just might sacrifice their noble hierarchy, And you're like, well, poop. I wanted to get rid of that Death Shadow on the other side of the game, on the side of the board. You know, when they're playing, uh, I don't know, black, green, Death Shadow, I don't know. <laughs> but with and it's also a minus it's a minus 2 she only starts with three loyalty so when you drop her and immediately minus her to make the opponent sacrifice a creature she's down to one loyalty and then you have to start slowly ticking her back up in order to use that minus yet again whereas oko if you're trying to control the opponent's board on the on the other side and when i say controlling the opponent's board i mean controlling the effects of two permanent types on the other side of the board, whether that's the text on, a, on an artifact or whether that's a text or a power and toughness on the creatures, you are gaining loyalty. And we talked in evaluating Liliana of the Veil how valuable her plus is because even though it's a symmetrical effect, you're marching her towards a greater no- amount of value that you can then cash in later on her minus minus but you almost never need to do that with Oko because you're just continually generating loyalty on him through both of his seemingly most powerful abilities. And then if you really need to, if the opponent does need to play something ultra powerful, you can then actually use the minus five, which we've never even talked about because we're talking about his plus ability.
0: I never activated minus five. I never really had to.
2: No, you don't, which is another wild thing about it. I mean, isn't it just weird that the effects on the best planeswalker ever are so boring? They're so (laughs) boring. One of them is healing salve, yeah, and then the other one is is pongify, beast within, beast within, and it's just like amazing because they're pluses and because some of the modifying text of it is like is like a creature or artifact, and the fact that the food is an artifact, so you get all these kind of like second level effects and other and also it's just cards. Like, they're just good, useful cards, and they plus him the whole way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's
1: hard to sort of say best Planeswalker, right, to ultimately answer the question. But I think if you're talking about a mid-range strategy, I think that it's not hard to say Oko is better than Liliana the Veil vale, for the
2: reasons that I mentioned earlier. Doesn't it seem like weirdly like Liliana the Veil's time is just like done now? She had a really good run. Uh, yeah, she had a really good run right up until I finished my playset, and then boom.
0: You know, the one thing I can say definitively about Oko and his power level is I think he might be the best planeswalker and pioneer.
2: Huh. I don't know. I think Teferi 3 might want to have a discussion with you too, but I feel like those are definitely the two best.
0: Yeah, yeah. More on that later.
2: Yep. Yeah. So how are you killing an Oko?
0: <sighs> you're not. You're just not. I felt like unless I actually made a mistake that I then was able to look back on and see where I went wrong, Okos don't die because I never saw Dreadbore. I never saw Angrath's Rampage, Hero's Downfall, or Murderous Rival. And uh, these are all cards that say Destroy, Target, Planeswalker. So even though there were some games I lost, even though I cast an Oko, I was usually still losing with an Oko on the board. And the experience I've had playing with him Basically, it lines up this way. He struggles against multiple threats, so against something like humans, affinity, or any deck that can make several bodies on the field that could just then ignore the walker or kill him with one swing, but pretending he doesn't exist was almost always the best plan of attack against an Oko deck. Oh, yeah. Basically, I'm just starting to get to the point where I wonder if the format actually needs to catch up to these powerful, impactful, and almost format-warping Planeswalkers as a card type. And the way we start to think about sideboard strategies and our strategies against graveyards or artifacts or what have you, maybe people need to start acknowledging that Planeswalkers are a card type we need to have answers for, whether it's Fry or Dreadbore or Assassin's Trophy, what have you.
1: I definitely think that I had opponents become hyper-focused on Oko and we're putting way too much damage into him versus into me. Because... Oko for me in the Snowblade deck was really about either buying time or invalidating creatures. You know, because I wasn't able to set up my my Stoneforge package quite well. I hadn't drawn a Stoneforge. I hadn't been able to put the the sword onto the battlefield. They removed the the Stoneforge Mystic, and I had to cast the the sword naturally. We all know that Stoneforge Mystic is not a fast strategy, really. And so Oko really enables the speed of that deck by slowing the opponent down in a lot of ways. But if you're an aggressive deck, I think you need to continue putting damage into your opponent as opposed to the Oko because you're just playing into their hands and letting Oko generate even more value than he needs to.
0: Did anyone else besides me ever feel like you lost a game against a player with Oko on the board? primarily because you wasted time and turns actually trying to kill Oko by swinging creatures into him. And in retrospect, you may have actually won if you just pretended he wasn't there.
2: I didn't. I, I just. I haven't had that happen yet, but it's certainly a situation I could see happening, especially if you're on a deck that's aggressive.
1: Oko is one of those cards that I think really creates a lot of value out of you being able to look ahead a number of turns. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's a real level up for a lot of players and I'm still barely getting to a few turns ahead at best. And I think, cause you'd be able have to be able to think about your math, right? Like, okay, if, if I do this now, you know, if I put the damage into Oko, what's that going to mean when they elk my creature or generator food and then they're able to cash it in. And so I think that you can't be hyper-focused on the board state and you have to be able to think, well, what does this board state mean next turn or the turn after, and with the cards in my hand and how fast I can deploy them and what that means for the turn after that. And I think that's an interesting skill test of the Oko card on the other side of the battlefield. You know, When you're playing, Oko doesn't feel super skill testing. You're just sort of removing the biggest threat or generating life when you need to.
0: (laughs) I don't know, giving your opponent some food in exchange for their Primeval Titan seems good.
2: I'll take it. (laughs) I, w- I definitely want to be able to get these two Mystic Sanctuaries out of my my deck with your Prime Evil Titan. That sounds good. Yes, please. Dave, did you ever have an Oko removed? Oh, all the time in the deck that I was playing. But I think that was because I didn't have any way to protect it other than point removal. And so if I got in a spot where I didn't have point removal, I didn't have the right point removal, for example, then they got they would just get taken out. But it was my choice to play it unprotected because I needed it to do something you know, where I wanted them to kill it, to use some resources to kill it instead of killing me. So I think it was a bit more on plan for what I was trying to do to dispose of my Okos. Cool. So we've talked about Oko a lot, right? I don't know if we have any more parting thoughts about gameplay with Oko or if we're supposed to talk about the question of what happens to the best planeswalker ever being it's so pervasive. Everybody's up in arms about its existence are you concerned about this card, really? Or
0: I don't think I'm concerned about Oko in and of itself. For me, it has more to do with the direction of research and development over at Wizards of the Coast in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> it, it, and I think other people are saying this, but what it really feels to me like the problem is that we've been seeing so many very powerful Planeswalkers printed in the last year or two. War of the Spark, I think, was really a turning point. But we're just not seeing answers printed at the same rate and even when we seem to get a good answer like a card like fry for instance they then print a card that's better than fry right <laughs> so what i'm really hopeful you know i'm always i think the most tempered member or one of the most tempered people on the podcast with regard to the b word wow i, I think Brags. i think so i don't know
2: Bragging is the B word around here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some listeners can find some old audio of me calling for the bans of something else. But I would rather just see better answers. I would rather see more opportunities for players to make decisions with their technology rather than just making a card unplayable because it's banned out of a format.
1: I've heard and I think agree with the concept that this card feels like it was changed late and not properly tested.
0: Or never cha- or designed and never tested and never changed.
1: That that seems really unlikely to me. Like I think that kind of it, it kind of doesn't put a good light on play design and play testing. I feel I just think that this is kind of like a Siege Rhino effect where they made a very late change to a card, didn't really understand the effect it would have on it. And I'm guessing it had to do with the the, the middle, the plus one ability on the card fundamentally though I think that has a dramatic effect on many formats you know we're seeing it in standard we're seeing it in pioneer we're seeing it in modern we're seeing it in vintage we're seeing it I'm sure it's in EDH no in brawl yeah apparently it's just the game winner in brawl so I would not be surprised if this card saw a ban Only because it invalidates so many other decks and so many other strategies and makes gameplay really redundant and
2: routine, and the play patterns are uninteresting. So I would like to read a different card to you and see how kind of innocuous the abilities on it seem to you. Okay, so I'm just going to read you the text box of a card. Tap. Exile target land card from a graveyard, add one mana of any color. Next line, black, tap. Exile target instruments or sorcery from a graveyard. Each opponent loses two life. Green, tap. Exile target creature from your from a graveyard. You gain two life. Seems okay. You just designed that on the fly? That's pretty good, Dave. I did design that on the fly.
0: I feel like I've seen that card before, but I can't say when or where or why.
2: For those of you who don't know what that card was, I just read the text from the card death shaman
0: well so what are you getting at though I, I i'm actually not seeing the comparison
2: what i'm getting at a little bit here is that this card Deathright shaman was a card that was about accrual of kind of small advantages in a way that's really kind of unclear when you first read the card when it's spoiled i i don't think that people were particularly on this i mean it doesn't help that that uh modern was still pretty new when death shaman came out so it took a little bit of time to kind of to kind of gain some steam um just a little bit of time though the 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 thing that i'm really trying to get to here is that i don't think it's that the card is too powerful i think it's too an innocuous in some ways and that's the probably the danger of a card like oko is that there's not a huge downside to playing it in a in a format that has so many different um so many different ways to fix your mana um, the stuff that it does is good in almost every deck, and so what happens is there's an unnatural progression where people will just put it in every archetype and that's kind of what we've seen starting to happen as well and so when I see a card that's kind of followed a similar trajectory, it's not a powerful card, of course like k c i or um faithless loot i mean it's a it's a little like faithless looting, I guess, but that that's a whole like sub branch of decks. this just kind of goes in like every deck. Can can play this card and can play it with no downside, and so that's what I think Deathrite Shaman was ultimately, and that's why it was a problem in Legacy and Modern both. It's it's homogenizing and ultimately therefore boring. Yeah, I I, so I worry a little bit about it from that aspect, which is that you know even the memes you see about this card where it's like everything is a three three elk, like that's literally what it does to Magic. It makes everything into every deck into a three three elk. So we'll see what happens. If people come up with some good good tech to play against it, if they print some better answers, I, I think there's a lot of time left before something like this happens. But um, it reminds me a little bit of Deathrite Shaman if I got to think about what it really does.
0: Yeah, I do agree that time will tell exactly how either oppressive or just ubiquitous this card is. Um, if it does become a deathright Shaman, it's just like everyone should and could play it just because of all the incidental value it accrues across strategies. But I also, I guess on some level, wouldn't even be surprised if Oko is kind of like a Jace the Mind Sculptor or Stoneforge Mystic, where he's ahead of his time in a way. And maybe he doesn't belong in Modern right now, but maybe over time, as Wizards Prince better answers, the format evolves, power creeps in gradually, if we could see Oko become, you know, a healthy unassuming member of the planeswalker suite that people have access to
2: to be clear i don't think anything's gonna happen to oko in modern soon though now standard it's another (laughs) another thought for another podcast but
1: and the future of pioneer is very uncertain but we'll see yeah
0: well there you have it folks oko the trickster six mana planeswalker that could (laughs) (laughs) only one way to get him and that's through an intro deck but he's worth it
1: Oh man, they, they really bumped the price up of that weird intro deck. I mean, the other cards are useless, but Oko himself...
0: Wa-wa-wee-wa. Wow, hmm. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going back west to ye old pioneer town. A joke that only I love to keep making. Stay with us. <laughs>
1: All right, fellas, we talked about trying to figure out how to incorporate Pioneer into this podcast, and we've done the easiest answer right now, which is shove it in the wind down. So what have you all been doing
2: with uh, with Pioneer lately? Because I know we've been pretty hyped about it. We've been hyped about it, and the people on our Slack have been hyped about it, and people on Twitter have been hyped about it. So there's just been a lot of conversation this week about Pioneer and Oko. So we hit all the all the highlights this week on our episode.
0: I've been so hyped that I've played three different decks on Pioneer in the last week in addition to the Oko Modern deck I practiced for this episode.
1: Stan, I am totally there with you. Like, I do not want to focus on a single deck in Pioneer, like trying to, like, tweak it and, like, figure out little nuances. I just want to play sort of different strategies and figure out which ones seem good and seem fun for me to play. Like, I I do not see the point of getting into the depths of hardened scales right now to see, do I want three fatal push or I want two thought C's? Uh,
0: yeah, I agree. And I, and I think your use of right now is really important there because the format is still an unknown canvas, right? And until we actually have an idea of what the meta looks like the way we do in modern right now, I think at that point we can really start honing in on strategies, but it's really this unique time where we could just seemingly try whatever we want and see what sticks.
2: Yeah, let's see. we will never have that again. Let's see how long that lasts. It could be a matter of days,
0: or you know, until a new format is introduced.
2: Yeah. So, what decks have you been playing, Stan?
0: Um, I actually, I think I listed them all last week uh, in terms of cards that I was interested in. Um, I've been playing a lot of blue, red, and soul. And can I share a little quick trivia fact that occurred to me this week? I was playing in soul, blue, red, and soul, which is using uh, in soul artifact the one and a blue enchantment that makes an artifact into a creature with base power 5-5 five five and like Hangerback Walker and Ornithopter, I'm literally holding the deck in my hands as I say this, it was the very first net deck I ever built after Mike Segrist played it at Pro Tour Magic Origins. You never
1: forget your first net deck,
0: yep. So here's the thing: at that point, I wasn't even playing standard or constructed competitively at all. I just saw this killer deck that I wanted to bring to my kitchen table, which is where I was playing constructed most of the time at that point in my Magic life. So it's cool to be able to play that again, and it's been doing okay for me. Um, been tweaking a list that Canister published on Twitter recently, and having a lot of fun, and and having like a little bit of success. I think there's some promise there. Been revisiting. Is it Phoenix? Um, based on Ryan Overturf's list. And uh, Green Black Elves was the first Pioneer deck I played. The first league I did in Pioneer was with Elves. And uh, yeah, just like...
1: Dude, Elves elves seemed good. Elves seemed really good when you played me.
0: Yeah. Uh, Go wide creature aggro strategies with a little bit of reach via Shaman of the Pack is not bad.
1: With the lack of ability for blue-white to be successful right now, seemingly. And the fact that I haven't really seen the black-based mid-range decks running like Languish, I I don't really understand why the go-wide decks are not being more successful,
2: and maybe I'm overlooking something. Probably Oko. I don't know. I mean, I've been playing Blue-Red Phoenix, too. I, get, I managed to fit one league in. It's a good deck. It's good, good to get another chance to play it. I feel like the thing in the ice is super good in this format because there's a lot of people playing a lot of creatures. So, uh, I was often kind of like, this is my only out. Then I would cantrip my way to a thing in the ice and then flip it up and go to town from there. Really takes you back, right? Oh yeah. It really takes me back to March.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've been, I've been focusing on, uh, green, black hardened scales. I really like the deck. It doesn't have the exact same play patterns at all of modern hardened scales. But it, it gives you a lot of fun interactions. You get a lot of fun, big artifact creatures. And you get to play, have a lot of different lines. And I think it's, uh, I think it's got some legs. Um, I've also been building up. I do have Blue Red Phoenix as well. I have a blue-white sort of flyer spirits because I had so many of these pieces already. So I'm just hyped to be able to keep playing some more. <laughs> now that the testing for this week's done, man. This this
0: podcast. So before we get into Pioneer Challenge discussion, as of now, we've basically been playing the format for like a week, give or take, just a little under a week, maybe six days. If you count the free to play tournament practice rooms on MTGO, I have not encountered anything that I feel is truly broken in a problematic way. Like I, I don't think I've seen what the new KCI is, and. And I'm starting to wonder whether the design philosophy of this era of cards was so fair that this format is going to be almost aggressively fair.
1: I think it's just not big enough, to be honest with you. You know, it's like seven years of cards versus, what, 14, 15, 16, 16? Yeah. Yeah. It's just so drastically different.
2: Uh, I think we're all going to get pretty tired of Teferi 3 real soon yeah Dave, you, real soon you,
0: you really took the words out of my mouth i feel like teferi 3 has probably been the most oppressive card that i've had to play against and i yeah.
1: i have not played against it yet
0: the way he warps games of magic i used to love doing this in modern but uh being on the opposite side of a table of a time Raveler in pioneer just feels like i there's nothing i can do
1: yeah, I think that Wizards will need to make a decision pretty soon in terms of how fun do they want the format to be? And I think that I'm purposely leaving that up to your interpretation, right? Like so how how much play and how much standardy do they how standardy do they want this format to feel in terms of ability to interact in terms of strategic board-based gameplay, which is what standard typically is? Um, and I think that that is the question I would I would really have to propose to Watsy. is is how interactive and how battlefield based do you want this format to be?
2: Yeah, it'll be fun to watch over the next couple of months. Uh, wizards calibrate the format. I will say that I still think cat combo has a good chance to be problematic, and we're gonna have we have a little bit of data. So Shane's gonna take us through the first. Pioneer Challenge was held on this Sunday, this Saturday or Sunday. So we got, as is typical, the top 32 decks. And it was
1: pretty easy to break them down into archetypes, thankfully, because we don't have a preponderance of archetypes just yet, at least in this tournament. So out of the top 32, we had 9 sahili Saheeli-based decks. So this is kind of the control combo deck of the format, So, most of them are like these four color Sahili decks, which is blue, white, red, green, um, which stretches the mana a little bit because it wants to play powerful planeswalkers like Oko, Sahili, the aforementioned Teferi 3, creatures like Reflector Mage, creatures like Rogue Refiner to provide kind of the tempo interaction and card draw, gives you some removal with like Wild Slash, maybe some Harness Lightnings. You get some Heart of Kirins typically for attacking and blocking to buy you time. You get your mana taken care of because you're running things like Gilded Goose and your mana elves. You have enchantments like Oath of Nyssa, which lets you cat- use any color of mana to cast your walkers. You get your rainbow lands like Aether Hub and Mana Confluence. There's even like a minor energy package in a lot of these decks. So you get like the aforementioned Rogue Refiner generates energy while cycling itself, lets you use your Aether Hubs and powers up that
2: cheap removal spell of Harness Lightning. I lost a an Awoken Horror, a Flipped uh thing in the ice to a harness lightning the other day and that was that was harsh two mana kill my seven eight boom um i'm gonna apologize to people who aren't familiar
1: with these cards yet because we just don't have time to get into the nuts and bolts of how they work so if you
2: don't know the names you know look them up later i apologize my favorite Sahili deck by the way is the vanafar one can't wait to try it maybe i'll try it yes. next.
0: yes and we'll have a link to the tournament results in show notes so you can find a list of all the decks there too and look up the cards that way.
1: So 9 of 32, it's over a quarter. Okay. We had six Devotion decks that uh, either are green or green's flashing blue. That's kind of the big mana of this early format. So they use the power of Nykthos, Shrine to Nyx, which is a land from Theros. Uh, it also has Mana Leyland of Abundance which we talked about in our Leyline episode as having a future home somewhere to generate tons of mana and power out really huge threats. So the green-blue decks seem to focus on things like Hydroid Crisis, Walking Ballista, Pelucranos, World Eater, Planeswalkers like Nissa who shakes the world, Kiora, Master of the Depths, uh, Oko, of course. the, The green decks have similar enablers but have slightly different payoffs. They will have things like Ulamog, The Ceaseless Hunger, Uh, which is a modern staple, of course. Uh, Nylea, God of the Hunt, to power up the other creatures on the board. Uh, Very similar decks, different kind of payoffs, I think.
2: Yeah, I will say quickly that there is a black devotion deck that's basically a mono-black vampires deck that's in the top 38, but it's running Nykthoses. And then there's also a mono-blue aggro devotion deck. So there's a bunch of people playing with devotion cards, yeah, but that that uh, mono blue deck did not have It Nickthos. does not have Nykthos, but it does have the classic mono blue cards Tha- uh, from Thassa? Thassa and Master of Waves from Theros yeah. Standard. So there's only a bunch of people playing around with the heroic are the devotion mechanic as it is. For sure.
1: But. Okay, so after that, we saw five mid-range style decks, which are the mid-range decks of the format. So four of those were Saltai. One was a green black delirium style deck, if you remember that mechanic mm-hmm. from what shadows, or was that from uh Eldritch? It mode? was in Shadows. So uh Sultai Midrange typically focuses around like this green black core for the interaction, like Thoughtseize, abrupt decay, assassin's trophy, fatal push. You get your value creatures like Corsair of Crufix, Gilded Goose, Tireless Tracker, Planeswalkers like Liliana the Last Hope, Vraska, Golgari Queen. Yep. But when when you move into blue, you get the ability to run these huge value cards like we talked about Oko the whole episode but you get jace finn's prodigy you get drown in the lock which is showing itself to be uh, early you know two or three of in a lot of these decks and you get dig through time which lets you peel through your deck and select cards from like the what is it the top six is
2: that correct dig through time seven
1: yeah well there you go seven even better than i thought but then you also get sideboard counter magic, which is a classic reason to be playing into blue. So you get like your disdainful strokes, mystical
2: disputes, things like that. I mean, these are your Oko decks, straight up. Yeah, your, your other decks. than the Sahili ones, these are your these are your Oko mid-rangey. This is really the Jund of the format. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's your mid-range deck. Um, I was a little bit surprised to
1: see n- no Obzon. You know, there's you know, Siege Rhino is not an early player in this tournament. We'll see if that that keeps to be the you know this the the reality, but I was surprised to see not a single Obz deck here. No path to exile means
2: no yeah. white, maybe it was,
1: I don't know. I mean, but it was, it was such a powerful standard player during the Cons era. I think people were expecting just to see Siege Rhino come back again for sure. Uh, we saw three blue red Phoenix decks, like Dave was saying he was playing, um, and I just put together as well. So I I, I call these the a lot of blue and red spells decks. You know, they operate really similarly similarly to Phoenix decks and moderns, right? You want to get those arc lights in your graveyard and you cast spells that enable that. And then you're also removing counters from your things in the ice and then you're attacking, yep. right? So you get your enablers, you get like your merchant of the veil uh, via the spell half of Haggle on the adventure card there. You get charter course, you get strategic planning, you get lightning axe, you get is it charm, you know, getting your birds in the yard there. Your, you have your cheap burn with Wild Slash and Fiery Temper. lets you go to the face or so remove creatures in your way. Although that's not really a, a big need in these Arclight decks. Uh, while also getting your creatures online at the same time. So you do have that same engine.
0: Man, after playing Is It Phoenix in both Pioneer and Modern and testing a lot of these cards, even back in the days of Standard when this was a Standard deck, is it charm and fiery temper are so good in pioneer compared to modern it's it's insane the delta of their power
2: is it charm is the best card to draw in this deck i feel like in 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 pioneer and it was like something you can't even consider running in modern it's wild
1: i have to say looking at is it charm this is what makes me excited about pioneer is that card alone? Like I'm not even like a real is it mage, right? But I'm looking at it as a charm, and I'm like, this card sucks in modern. It's essentially unplayable. But it looks like it has the ability to be such a cool utility card that's enabling certain strategies, you know, providing counter magic. It just looks dope, and I'm excited to play it. And the fact that I can play it is what that's just one instance of what makes me excited about Pioneer.
0: Yeah.
2: Let me tell you the card that I'm excited to play in the stack, and that's Treasure Cruise never heard of it red. all aboard yeah exactly enjoy oh the it, enjoy the cruise while you can cuz if this card gets banned it's going to be because of this deck but yeah. um cuz it is very good to cast three treasure cruises in one game feels amazing yeah i would do
1: that sounds okay looking forward to that too i actually brought uh, blue red phoenix pioneer with me for this trip like just hoping i can get to a store on my next my next in stop idaho one of these nights I'm going to be in Portland the next three nights. So
0: Portland, Maine?
1: <laughs> Home of the Portland Pod, our editor. Shout-outs to Tanner. We had two burn decks, um, which are the burn decks of the format, just uh, pretty similar to modern burn. They have a suite of aggressive creatures, things like Monastery Soul Soulscar Mage, Idleon and the Great Revel, backed up by burn spells. They get the advantage of running Smuggler's Copter here, or perhaps you know the ability to run Smuggler's Copters, because you can in the speed of this format. It gives you evasive attacking, also sculpting your hand a little bit. One of these decks was a little bit more wizard-based. It ha- capitalized on things like Wizard Lightning, um, had a few more creatures, while the other was kind of more like a modern burn deck, a modern Boros burn deck. It had more spell-based gr- aggression. Cool. So we'll talk quickly about how this top eight shook out, because why not? Um, first place, Saltai Midrange. Second place, Blue Ridge Phoenix. Third place, Salty Midrange. That was an inspiring spike, by the way, in third place. And that that guy, he is everywhere. He is, he is grinding and winning. Yep. So good on you.
0: Got to work hard to get results.
1: Yep. And he does. He's always streaming. He's one of my uh, go-tos when I'm working from home. So thanks. Sparring Spike. Um, fourth place. Mono blue aggro deck. Dave talked about this deck briefly. This basically runs 28 reasonably costed blue creatures. You know, things like Brazen Brower, Siren Storm Tamer, Tempest Djinn. You get like your Merfolk that are illegal here. Uh, Thassa, God of the Sea to capitalize on that blue devotion um quench broadly was considered unplayable by a lot of people and this shows up as a four of which is kind of the mo- mana leak of the of modern here the mana, the mana leak that's going to be seen in pioneer perhaps it's a know. one of the blue instant i don't know if it's going to be and, seen
0: in pioneer for much longer i mean
1: this deck ran it so it, basically the opponent has to pay two mana or have their spell countered so mana leaks a three this is a two that's a pretty big difference as we've mentioned in various ways of analyzing cards
2: this deck has a lot of wizards in it. I'm like, why are we not running wizards' rebuttal, rebuke, or whatever? That's a really good There's point. There's 16 wizards in this deck.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe I think you're right, Dave. I think that's probably just strictly better. But we're also not winning with this deck, so and we never will. Sadly, there was no dive down. So if it's not if it's not on this deck. I don't think the card that Dive Down is going to see some play. Easy. Okay. Let's be patient. Patience. We can make it I happen. I mean, we
0: don't know how they're using Quench either. Maybe Dive Down could just replace Quench.
1: Okay. True. So, and then 5th uh, and 6th, 4-Color Sahili. 7th and 8th, Blue Red Phoenix. So, not a super dynamic uh, top 8 there. Except all the Blue Red Phoenix decks made the top 8. They sure did. Um, yep. all, all 3 are in the top 8 there, along with 2 of the 4 mid midrange decks. So things I saw of note, we saw 11 Oko decks, 10 Once Upon a Time decks, 9 Teferi 3 decks, 7 Gilded Goose decks. There is not a single Marvel, not a single Aetherworks Marvel in the whole top 32. Shocking. Um, I just think that there's just lots of ways that just hate it outright in main decks and also sideboards. Um, but we'll see if it makes a little comeback. Maybe just people don't have it built quite right yet. Uh, there was no death Deathrite Shaman. In any of the blue green, uh, any of the black green base decks, excuse me, there was no hardened scales to my chagrin, and only one collected company deck. So, you know, this is one tournament, this is one weekend, um, but some of the pillars of the format that people predicted are not pillars just yet. In things like hardened scales, collected company, and Marvel, and I think we're seeing um, the initial pillars perhaps be formed. I personally. No this is going to sound like an insane take, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is close to kind of the actual tier list until bans take place. You know, just in the order of that we saw here, right? Like our S tier is Sahili, our A tier is Devotion, then we see mid-range and Phoenix behind that, red aggro at red aggro type decks behind that, and then kind of everything else and then F is Marvel. That that, that that's <laughs> where I'm at right now. I wouldn't be surprised if this is what we see until like a ban. All All right. Call
0: shots for initial bans too soon or
1: I don't want to. I don't want to. That's like negative. I want to be positive about the swarm for a bit. Same. Teferi 3. <laughs> just sneak it in there, Stan.
0: Just, the, the way he impacts the Saheeli It's, it's deck, an unfun card. Yeah, it's an it, unfun it, card. It just, you know, Splinter Twin Decks used to force opponents to hold up interaction and, and not play magic. Teferi 3 makes it such that you just can't play magic because you only cast sword spells at sorcery speed.
2: I will say that one of my match losses, I, I narrowly missed a 4-1 was against Sahili, because I misplayed flipping my my thing in the ice pre-combat. I was like holding it up to try to do something tricky and then I realized I couldn't play my opt during the begin combat step and I was just exactly. done after that. Couldn't do enough damage.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> Pioneer is solved. If you look at Twitter, every deck is broken. But if you ask me, I think most decks are just pretty good. I'm really excited to see where the format goes. I get to start playing at the LGS in November. We finally had a shop in Chicago announce their weekly Pioneer schedule as kind of a pilot program. So I will definitely want to talk about it some more in the podcast in the future.
1: Yeah, I think my LGS had a Saturday tournament, like the very first Saturday. I wasn't able to go because I just had to clean gutters like an adult. Ugh. But um, they, I think they had like 14 people show up, which is pretty fast to put that together and clear your schedule to show up on saturday so i am hyped for the wednesday night pioneer that's starting up there
0: well that wraps up this week's show if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out and if you use apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review if you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern you can tweet us at thedivedown, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. You can do that at patreon.com slash thedivedown. Also, shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the dive Down. Sign up for Mana Traders using promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, for 10% off your first three months of renting paper or Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and elk that food!